3: Any more far? Hello, and welcome to episode 6 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week it's a full house. That means leading the line and wearing the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke?
2: Yeah, really good Ben um, and I think this is going to be an interesting week because the powers that be and the decisions that have happened this week give us quite a bit to get into.
3: Oh, there's loads to get our teeth into this week. We might not even talk about actual football. It might just be referees, but we'll see how we go, because you're also joined by Fulham fan Matthew. Matthew, how have you been this past seven days?
0: Yeah, I've been pretty good. Uh, good sharing in the first pod derby of the season, as we like to put it. Um, certainly didn't come away with the win, but Fulham put in a decent uh, performance, and that's, you know, this stage of the season all we can ask for.
3: I did indeed. We'll get to that later in the show, I promise, because obviously it's a pod derby. We can't forget that. And we cannot forget also a debut appearance this week. His name's Stuart Quigley. Stuart, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Hope you're ready for plenty of Premier League chats.
1: Uh, honestly, I'm so excited to get into this. When you said that when we organised this and the fixtures that were on tap, I was thinking this could be a tasty weekend and it certainly was.
3: Well, you picked the right week to get into the fold. And before we chat all things Premier League, let's do some social media bits. Otherwise, we'll be talking into the abyss once more. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Dan Tracy, 1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. Talking of clubs, I'm delighted to announce we're now part of the UK's first ever sports podcast network, that being Sports Social. So check out the URL and all the links posted throughout the week on the Real Football Pod account. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to leave a review so we move up the league table and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Also, I need to mention my content partner, that being betregal.com. For all the tips and predictions you'll ever need, visit their website. And the easiest way to find all the links is by going to Linktree, slash real footballcast, but adopting the art and the E, you get 10 podcast platforms to choose from. It's never been easier to listen to this show. Right, it's time to go live. Where should we go first? Well, it really is a case of which VAR incident we want to talk about first. There's so many, we're going to have to go through them all. It's going to take a lot of time. But first, let's go to Stamford Bridge and, Carl, Chelsea's rather controversial win over West Ham. The big question here, though, should Maxwell Cornet's goal later on have been scrubbed off?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting one, isn't it, Dan, this one? Because I think most of us will look at that and say that, you know, there isn't a foul and what is it the referee's looking for? Um, but it was interesting that I think Dermot Gallagher was on Talk Sport um, the other night and was kind of explaining where he feels that the decision has been made and the rules that are in place that kind of mean the referee or the VAR referee came to the decision he did and that is that if there's a foul on the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper's down then play needs to be stopped Um, and he felt that the problem was with this goal was that the VAR official has just seen that Mendy's on the floor injured and technically the game should have been stopped even though the on-field referee obviously decided that he didn't think there was much in it and he allowed the game to go on. Um, What was interesting in that as well was that if the referee had stopped the game that when a goalkeeper goes down and gets injured, um, that the actual the, the game should restart by a drop ball being given at the goalkeeper's feet, um, which then starts bringing into play the stuff of, like, players are now intelligent and know how to kind of bend the rules. So what's stopping goalkeepers, like, we feel maybe the referee thought with Mendy was that, well, I don't think you're actually injured, and maybe you're now just trying to pretend to be injured so that I'll stop the game. But ultimately, the wrong decision was got because there was no foul in that at all the game should have been allowed to go on and West Ham rightfully should come away from that game with a well-earned point um, the only thing I would like to mention Dan with the, with what we're going to talk about today just from my personal opinion is I think what we have to remember is that there actually isn't wrong anything wrong with VAR itself you know the technology is what we need and the technology can be used in the right way. So when we sort of moan about VAR, I think we need to remember that actually the technology is what we need and where football should be and what it should be using. It's What's more important now is making sure that the people that are using it and come into these decisions... Are giving the right decisions and getting to the right outcomes. Because at the moment, what's really letting Bar down are the officials that are using it, and week in, week out, keep coming to the you know these stupid decisions and and giving giving free kicks or penalties or that in situations that just leave most of us baffled.
3: Yeah, I think that is a fair bit of context to apply to this debate, this episode, shall we say. That it's not really technology; it's constant user error, and I think that's what we've seen across the weekend and. We'll kind of discuss the ramifications of that coming to next week later in the show. But Matthew, going back to Stamford Bridge, in terms of the actual decision process, many will feel that Andrew Madley made the right decision. But once Jared has had a word in his ear, is that the point where the kind of decision has already been made to overturn? The kind of, well, we should go and have a look in the monitor. Yes, we will see a positive influence of that in a moment. But when you're told to go to the monitor, there's every chance that's going to get overturned. Do the referees need to be stronger themselves in this situation?
0: I think it is, and I think that's sort of been one of the complaints with how VAR is used. Now, I do agree with Carl, and this is something I've been saying for a while. It's not the technology that's the problem, it's the referee's use of it. And I think this is one of the, those occasions where maybe it should be the referee, you know, this point is an example, but maybe it should be used you know, sort of elsewhere, is rather than, you know, a, uh, a VAR official telling him, you need to look at this, it should more be a case of the on-field referee makes the decision and then just says, "Right, I'm just going to check that." You look, you look at that in rugby, where you know they say, "the the try, you know the try is scored," and then they say, "Fine, no, I'm given the try. I, I just need to go back and see if there's a forward pass," and then the you know the TMO in this case will just just sort of helps them through by basically being in charge of the dials and maybe sort of clarifying rules sort of thing. So I do so as carl said the idea is there i think is the implementation of it so i think this should be a case where you know as you said the on-field referee should be you know, stronger with his convictions and that should be the lead decision rather than the var official in their in you know in their area saying you need to look at this it should be a case of the referee on the field you know decides what to do with it and then the uh, var official just helps them out rather than rather than trying to overrule them as it were
3: Well, Stuart, if we expand on that point, do you feel we've got to the point where referees are now too reliant on the monitor, that it's kind of the safety net, if you will, and then they don't have to make an absolute decision because they know that the monitor's there and they're kind of not really making the decision for themselves? Is VAR getting too far involved in these minor details when it said originally that this wasn't going to be the case?
1: I do think there's a certain element of, over the last couple of years, the rules have become a bit muddied and the, we've got to a point now where I'm not entirely sure what fouls are and what aren't. And I'm not entirely sure what should be and what shouldn't be. And uh, and as far as the reach of it goes, I do seem to recall about, I think it was a year ago, if not season before, I think it was the the COVID season um, whereby Danny Welbeck said words to the effect of, I know that if I can get myself into a certain position I will get the, the benefit of the doubt. If not off the referee, then off the uh, VAR. And it, it can be sort of, uh, not necessarily abused. I think that's a bit too strong, but like, there is certainly an element, and especially in regard to West Ham's winner, or well, not winner, sorry, but the goal at the end that would have um, gotten them a point at the very least. Um, I'm sure Mendy looks, Mendy has a look and knows what he's doing in that regard and so i can't help but feel like and, and this is the thing about vr this is the thing about football this is the thing about refereeing and rules in general people will always try to stretch them to breaking point and it's just that, that we've got to try and make sure that within that there's an element of control that can be had that doesn't go to the point where everything can be reviewed from 30 seconds before from 20 like I, there's it, it, an old thing that used to happen a lot, it, it, VAR can't intervene in this because it's just not allowed to. Which is, the, you would see teams concede from corners that shouldn't have been given, and everyone would go, "Oh, if the referee didn't make that decision, then they wouldn't have conceded." No, you've got to, you've got to be fine as a defensive team. You've got to make sure you do the right things. Whereas this, I think, the scope allows for a certain element of. Just playing to a camera, if not necessarily the rules. And and the whole thing of playing to the whistle, if the referees are going to let it go, as you say, then the the whistle isn't forthcoming.
3: Yeah, as I say, it's kind of what is the absolute gatekeeper of rules here. You know, playing to the whistle used to be the arbitrary, everyone does that. But now it's play to the whistle, play to the camera, play someone upstairs. No one really knows what is the key decision in the game and who's going to make it. I mean, we'll go to an example later on at Aston Villa. Decision made too early, but who should be making the decision? I'll keep my powder dry, but you get the idea of where I'm going there. But, Cole David Moyes said after this game, the decision was criminal. I think, really, a lot of people would agree. Now, the PGMOL have said themselves that the decision was wrong. But once again, it's very easy to offer this lip service two days later and say, whoops, we got it wrong. They shouldn't be getting it wrong, should they?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, we all know, don't we? I have an element of... You know, sympathy for on field referees because anyone who's potentially done that or had a go at ref in a game of football, and this is even at the amateur level, realises how quick a game goes. You know, you've got players all over the place calling for stuff. You might not have the right angle. But I think where we're getting frustrated now is that when a guy can have multiple looks at it from multiple angles and they are top officials, we need to be knowing that these guys are capable of getting the right decisions. Um, And we're not just talking 50-50 decisions here where you could go, oh, right, well, okay, well, yeah, I might not see that as a foul, but he may have. We're talking decisions that the whole of the football industry are looking at going, have you given that as a free kick? Or how did you not see that take place? I mean, everyone makes mistakes in their job. We know that, you know, everyone makes mistakes and you don't want to see people sacked or, you know, anything like that for single mistakes. But the fact that no one, if you like, there's no face that comes out after this weekend and kind of takes on that responsibility and says, look, we're going to make sure that this doesn't happen. You know, you just hear these statements that get read by a faceless, you know, unit. I think that's where people are feeling that nothing's actually going to be done about this. And, you know, if there was, say, a face to this and, you know, right, this is what we're now putting in place to make sure this doesn't happen, you know, and this is how it's going to work then that's what I think would make people feel well okay things are being learnt here you know at the moment I think as football fans you just feel that VAR is basically one chaos from one week to the next and nothing seems to be being learnt from these errors that are happening and that these officials that potentially could keep making these mistakes and making these decisions um, are not actually being dealt with and I think one of the other things that's really interesting in it is when we say about the referees being stronger is obviously making sure that is the VAR official potentially more senior to the official on official on the pitch where the official on the pitch maybe thinks I don't want to undermine this guy in the VAR booth. If he's telling me to look at it, then I've, I've probably made a mistake here. So I need to change that because that is also something that could be coming into play, you know, do the referees if there's a far superior ref of you know, experience in the VAR booth, does he possibly feel, oh, I don't want to blacken my card here and not go with what he's saying, so I better give what he's telling me to give in my ear. So we do need to know and see some proof that this is all being worked on and the right training is being given.
3: Now, Matthew, when you look at the decision itself being scrubbed out, does this also go back to goalkeepers having too much protection? Cole alluded to it a moment ago about when there's a, a foul, inverted commas, you have to blow up in the box. But let's take it as a, a skirmish outside the box. It's, I don't know, Wesley Fofana and Jared Bowie going together. There might be a 50-50. A goal is scored. Do you reckon it's clawed back at all? Do you reckon the goal stands? Is it because the goalkeeper is the central issue here?
0: Yeah, I think there there is an element of that, you know, whether or not it's you know, rightly so. Because they you know they do have special states because they're the ones you can use their hands. So maybe, that, maybe that's the uh, whole reasoning behind it. I do think it is, as you said, a little bit special protection because if that happens, you know, 30 seconds earlier on the halfway line, then you could probably make the argument, as there was a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, that there were enough stages of play between the instant and the goal for it to, uh, uh, for it not to count. I think it may have been the Chelsea Spurs game. Yeah, it was. Uh, Actually, actually, yeah. So. Maybe it is a special, you know, whether that's right or whether that's wrong is probably a different debate. You know, as I say, maybe it's because they, you know, have special powers, as it were. But yeah, I think, I think there's a yeah, if that happened, if that happened elsewhere, it probably wouldn't. Because I remember last season—I think it was last season—Man United v Arsenal at Old Trafford. David De Gea was injured during the whole incident, and everyone was sort of saying, you know, because it's a goalkeeper, how much of an influence does that have on it? Because he was down injured, and then an Arsenal played sort of scored on what was effectively an empty net. Um, how does that work? So yeah, I think this may be a case of goalkeeper—you know—it being a goalkeeper just sort of you know, uh, confuses the matter uh, a little bit more slightly.
3: Now, Stuart, some people will say that Bowen put her boots on Mendy. Now, when you look at it, there was contact. But also, when you look at where the contact is taking place, the West Ham forward doesn't really have anywhere else to go. So when you look at that, do you see any malice in that moment at all?
1: No, I think, and this is where I have to check my biases, because there's been a few incidences throughout this season so far where it's like, it might be a few instances we're going to come to talk about actually, where I, I have to really rein in what I think about necessarily the club that it's going to be scored against and how, and ultimately you have to ask yourself the question if that was scored against your club, how angry would you be? And I think in terms of all alternatively, like flipping it on the other side, like if that was denied, if you were denied a goal and that was your club, how angry would you be in that instance? And if we'd, been on the receiving end, if my club had been on the receiving end of that and and, uh, it was my goalkeeper, I would probably think, oh, that's a bit harsh. But at the same time, you probably would think there was something in there. It's a very small amount. Because of the protection that the goalkeepers have, as you mentioned, that there comes this idea of uh, any sort of challenge on them is deemed too much. And i got, even with all of my, um, maybe not necessarily enjoying being a massive flag waver of Chelsea Football Club, I still feel like I can say, without any real um, outside influence, that I, I think I should have studied. Just, it should have, really. Like I, I can't see any other way. We
0: took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
3: Yeah, as I say, I think, you know, David Moyes took very obvious umbrage to it. I think 90% of Twitter, even some hardened Chelsea fans would say, do you know what, we got away with one. I guess the caveat for Chelsea is that they will point to a few weeks back with that late draw against Spurs, you know... VAR went missing then. Maybe it balances itself out. I'm not saying that two wrongs equal a right, but they do say that football has a tendency to balance itself out across the season, so maybe that's the yin-yang and of that. But it doesn't make VAR anywhere near ideal at the moment because we've got another issue now. We're off to St James's Park. Now, Podsquad member Max has been kind enough to offer quite a large bit of input, so we're going to use that first before we talk about the actual incident itself. So let me just read his notes. He thought the overturned goal was soft and he would be frustrated if it was given against Palace, But, there's a few more notes here. A, he says that Willock was already on the way to misjudging the header and clattering to Guaita before Mitchell did. B, it shouldn't have been a free kick in the first place as Isaac bunched into Gaye. C, last season, Selhurst saw Newcastle score from a corner that shouldn't have been a corner and Palace had a winning goal disallowed for a very soft foul. And D, how brainless comments of other teams refusing to sell them players on the cheap being unfair is ridiculous in this everyone's against us, the league doesn't want us to do well conspiracy theory. And breathe. Right, so that's Max's notes. Thanks for that, Max. Now we're going to just set those notes completely. So, first up, let's pick the bones out of the decision itself. Now, Carl, you raised a very good point and you started my thunder slightly. And I think you mentioned this years back, actually, because so I think we're seeing this play out. I remember you saying that there's going to be an instance where a junior ref has a word in his ear from a senior ref, says, You've got to go and see that and think, Actually, well, do you know what? The senior ref's had a word. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't want to risk this. That man was Lee Mason having worked with Michael Salisbury. Michael Salisbury had seven matches in terms of Premier League experience by the end of this weekend. So what you said, Carl, do you reckon that's what unfolded at St James's Park?
2: Yeah, it could have been, couldn't it? Because, you know, anyone that tries to say no, you know, in, in work, that doesn't happen, you know, you go with... They are lying, you know. Whenever you go and work somewhere, if a, if a far superior um you know colleague of yours suddenly was to say to you uh, listen I don't think you're doing that right what we normally do is we do this or do that you naturally will go well I better I better listen to him because he's actually been here longer than me and done this longer than me so he probably knows a little bit better and you do feel that you know pressure to kind of go oh, well, I better not, you know, I better not suddenly go, well, no, I don't think you're right. I think we should be doing this and I don't agree because you're trying to make an impression and a good one. And as I say, there may be some pressure that, well, if I go against this guy, does he have enough, you know, sway within the group where potentially he could go back and say, "Uh, well, I didn't think he was that great. Maybe it's too soon and he probably needs to go and learn his trade again in the lower leagues for a bit longer. So I do believe there could be an element of that where people go, oh, yeah, you know, this, this guy who's telling me to go and have a look at the monitor now, he's, you know, he's been at a World Cup, he's been at a Euros, he's been near this long, he's well known within the group of referees and he's obviously, you know, they all like him and look up to him. So if I base him, he's telling me to go and have a look and I go and look and now come back and say, no, I'm sticking to my decision, he might not like that um, and he might not take too kindly to that. So I do believe that is something we have to try and make sure isn't happening in the game. Um, how we do that, I don't know. You know, I do believe we've got to a stage where we need to be hearing these conversations for ourselves, so we know what's being said and and what what's being looked at. Um, so I do believe there could be an element that you know some you know inexperienced refs might feel some pressure once they're told to go to the monitor.
3: Maybe it needs a kind of mentoring scheme where. You know, Michael Salisbury's paired up with Lee Mason for the season. And every game that he referees, Lee Mason is his eyes and ears around the ground in terms of the cameras. And then there's a more of a stronger connection between the two. Not the fear of, oh, if I get this one wrong, I'm going to lose my job. It's like, actually, I'm here to help you, not work against you, Michael. Let's work together and I'm going to guide you through the, the decisions you might have missed. And then that way it kind of breeds more confidence in junior referees. Just an idea, but if you're listening, PG, MOL, I'm always open to more conversation. But anyway, Matthew, more conversation now. More importantly, do you reckon the goal should have stood on Saturday at St James's Park? A simple yes or no. How do you reckon this
0: one should have panned out in your eyes? I think I think the decision was I think the decision was the right one. I think I think Isaac does make enough you know, contact with the goalkeeper. And you know, the way this was saw sort of first described to me because I was watching the uh, I was watching the Spurs phone game, obviously over here. And so I can only really get what's been told. And I had a Newcastle best friend of mine saw text and say, "Oh, you know." Uh, yeah, he sort of shoved um, Isaac into you know into the goalkeeper. And I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking, looking at the, or Tywin, whoever it was that pushed Newcastle player into the goalkeeper. Sorry, I haven't got. Yeah, exactly. Tyree Mitchell. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting confused with Gator, who's the goalkeeper with Gator. Sorry, my mistake. The way it was sort of described to me was that Mitchell sort of pulled a Paul pulled kind of push onto you know into the Palace goalkeeper. In which case, yeah, you would think yeah, probably right. But then you look at the footage itself and you think, did. Mitchell's push actually make all that much of a difference and I don't think it did which I I honestly think looking at that how much you no, know, how much of it was you know was Isaac's momentum how much of it was Mitchells I I no, I think that was I think that was a foul personally on I me. Mean, I don't think you know if it again if it had if it had been a decanioesque esque shove into the keeper, then you say I was the Palace player that initiated the foul. So in which case, play on. Uh, whether or not again that sort of drags into the goalkeeper's special protection unit, it would be a different matter. But the way it all sort of played out, I think yeah, that's more Isaac than it was um, than it was Mitchell. So I think in that situation, a foul is probably right.
3: Yeah, I think it's definitely a case of special protection once more. It just makes it so much more difficult because you're not treating incidents as they should be. It's that extra layer of, oh, it's a goalkeeper. It just kind of distorts the picture, really, doesn't it? And again, Stuart, the PGMRL have held their hands up on this one and said, oh, we got it wrong. Again, that's all very well. But that's going to be little comfort to Eddie Howe and his players when you consider their performance. And also, you know, worst case scenario, they might be two points off Europe at the end of the season and then, this happens, and you know, I know it's a 38-game season, but these are the flashpoints that can really
1: define a
3: whole campaign.
1: I agree with that. I think my reluctance within this incident is is basically what I mentioned earlier, this whole idea, about I'm not entirely sure what foul is anymore because yeah. I've watched this about a thousand times and every time I watch it, I go, oh no, okay, Newcastle have been uh, wrong there. Okay, no, Palace have been wrong this time. Uh, I'm also very reticent to say that anything that happens this early on in the season can have an impact at the end of the season because there's just literally so much to play for but I think one of the things that is frustrating from a a Premier League sort of outfit if I'm Eddie Howe if I'm Newcastle Palace whoever may have been on the receiving end both before and after uh, I mean that's damning in itself that we expect this to happen again which is to say that if they come out and say oh we definitely got this wrong you don't get the points back and while there might be lots more points to play for if something like this happens with two or three games to go that's the difference between potentially Europe and uh, not Europe or, or maybe something further down the table and you think to yourself managers get sacked on results players get sold on results but referees keep on playing the game and it's on one end watching this incident makes me think, oh, okay, this is proof as to why refereeing is such a hard job because I still now don't have a definitive opinion on it one way or another. But at the same time, if a player makes a mistake again and again and again, he'll get bombed out of the team. If a manager makes consistent mistakes, he'll get sacked. Whereas the referees, they're allowed to just keep doing it.
3: Yeah, this is it. I mean, what's their punishment a week off, A a trip to the championship, for example, it's not really a deterrent, is it? If someone told me I can have a week off paid, it'd be oh, brilliant, you know, I'd be making mistakes all the time. And the PGMOL were just like, okay, well, sorry, but you know, you don't expect the points handed back, but it's of little weight, isn't it? It's a very cheap and easy statement to make on Monday after the horse has bolted. But conspiracy theories have been a wash on time side at the moment because let's take the last week as a whole. A 98-minute winner against them in midweek. A goal scrubbed off at the weekend. Now, Cole, I don't honestly feel that the Premier League are up to no good here. But
2: if you were searching for an angle, there might be just a hint of evidence here. Yeah, this is a a hard one, isn't it? I mean, I'm like you, Dan. I don't believe potentially the Premier League have suddenly got it in for Newcastle, where it's like, right, we're going to do everything we can to try and stop Newcastle potentially getting get, getting points on the board. I think the bigger conspiracy theory and one that I think you could probably throw some weight behind is the big club bias where potentially you know do the big clubs get more decisions go for them on a week in week out basis um you know and that you could potentially look at i'm sure if you did the stats over the course of a season there may be some evidence that suggests that well yeah actually the top six are getting more decisions when they come and play against you know the rest of the league than they get against the top six um you know i think you know, everyone looks at little instances. I remember last year down at the Etihad, wasn't it? When we scored our last, last kick of the game winner. Um, and the fourth official absolutely looks devastated, doesn't he? When, you know, he looks at turns to Pep and looks at him as if to say, Oh my God, I can't believe it. We've allowed them to score a winner here against you." Um, so who knows? I, I, you'd like to think that there isn't in football, but then at the same time, money talks. And, you know, I'm sure that there are certain clubs that potentially the powers that be would want them in the best positions and in the top competitions across Europe for the money that they bring in. So you you would never rule it out. You know, you'd never be surprised if in a certain amount of year's time, you suddenly find out that, you know, this has been going on and the big clubs have been getting all the decisions. But I don't think there's anything against an individual team. But I do believe that there could be an element of bias towards the top four, top six.
3: Now, Matthew, I'll build on this point, because as you know, I live in Newcastle and the work conspiracy has been mooted to me tens, if not hundreds of times in the past week. So surely this doesn't go as deep as the Premier League and the big six not wanting their apple cart upset in any way.
0: Exactly, I think it is bad luck because if there had been these problems with big six, then stuff like Leicester would never have been allowed to happen, or West Ham in the past couple of seasons. You know, there would have been enough done to sort of make make sure that West Ham don't have their day, or or Leicester have their day, or I'm sure there have been teams in the past, you know, in the big six era, that they've come close but never quite done it. So yeah, it is probably just a little bit of luck. That being said, the way that the takeover happened. I get. I'm not saying there is, but again, if you no, know, 10, 15 years down the line, a book comes out or an article comes out from someone high up in the Premier League that says, "Yeah, we did," just because of the controversy that surrounded it, I wouldn't be surprised. But I don't think it is happening right now. Again, just to legally, just so we don't get caught.
3: <laughs> Great caveat. Well done, Matthew. You say my bacon there, but sure. When VAR makes a mistake or two, we've seen a lot this week alone it then has a habit of going the following way the other week. It always tries to make good, even though it's too late. So what do you envision seeing this weekend? Because all fans want is common sense, but are we going to see, I don't know, a a tightening of the use? Are we going to see a loosening of the rules? What do you reckon is going to happen?
1: This is the beauty of how insane it is, is that in whatever, I don't know, kind of way it goes, the inconsistency of it across the course of week to week... It, would, it wouldn't be a surprise. I, I wasn't entirely sure when I was going to play this card, but I'm going to play it now because um, we mentioned earlier about the fact that it's not necessarily the VAR, the technology itself. It's more the people using it. Um, I can prove categorically that VAR works because how many controversial or moments like this or sort of things where it's like, oh, this was so outrageous... Like how many of those happen in the Champions League or Europa League? It just doesn't. And so though it's that if it were if the if the technology were at full, then it would happen on a weekly basis in Europe as well as domestically. It happens domestically because of the men in charge.
3: Yeah, it's a great point. I mean we've said after the twenty eighteen World Cup and we said back then that we liked VAR because it worked. And then we've had literally four years of just constant discussion of it not working. And you're absolutely right in the sense that if you take the sample of European matches, if we did the Champions League version of this podcast on Thursday, I highly doubt we'd be talking about one for instance, let alone half a dozen. So you're absolutely spot on that. Good shouts. But we shouldn't bash the referees completely because Michael Oliver had to now get the monitor and stick with his original decision. So well done, Michael. So, Carl, with that in mind... It was initially a handball given against Bournemouth. I guess the mitigating circumstance is the close proximity of the defender. But for you, is it the turn of the body which then gives it a penalty?
2: I love the fact that he went stuck to his decision when it was probably the one wrong decision this weekend. Because I couldn't believe when I saw that one, that it had been given as a penalty having been reviewed. Because as you say, the close proximity, I think the player has his arm tucked in as close to his chest as he can probably get it so I actually think that was one where I suppose you, yes you give credit to him for sticking to his decision on the pitch but I think having had the chance to have another look at that I probably would have been inclined to actually change my decision and gone oh well, yeah actually that's not necessarily the hand the arm isn't out in the most unnatural position you can imagine you know he's twisted his body he's bent his arms up into his chest as much as he probably can in the moment. And yet the referee gives the penalty for handball. I felt that one was really harsh, but at the same time, I would say, yes, give the referee credit for the fact that he went to the monitor, looked and still had the conviction to say, no, in my mind, that's a penalty. And in some ways, I don't mind that because... That's a situation where then we now know who's made that decision. And ultimately, if you suddenly get a situation where Michael Oliver each week is going and viewing stuff on the monitor and still coming away with the wrong decision, then you know what referee is that needs training and what he needs work on. Um, So, yeah, credit to him. But I did think that he had a chance to look. And probably, you know, in my opinion, I would have changed my mind on that one because I thought it was a very harsh handball to give.
3: Well, Matthew, Michael Oliver's usually held as the gold standard of English referees, rightly or wrongly. So with him doing what he did and other referees doing what they did at the weekend, do you reckon the edict is now going to sway a little bit to say, actually, maybe you need to be a bit more convincing in your decisions. Don't always rely on the monitor. Back yourself.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices yeah, I
0: think that that is a possibility. You know, you know, lead by, you know, lead by example, do as the Romans do, as the as the phrase tend to go. So, if Michael Oliver has, you know, as you said, he is the he is the main guy in the Premier League, and if he has decided to do this, then it may be well. And if everyone's you know praising him for doing exactly that then it might just be, you know, the one example that the PGMOL can look at and say, right, because I, 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 I've i seen this before, you know, the, the referees all sort of gather and trade at one place every week. It might be St. George's Park now. So there must be a meeting where they say, right, this is what went well, this is what went badly over the weekend. It looks like, you know, exhibit A of, right, this is what you do from now on. And we're going to expect to see a lot more of it you know, moving forward. Whether or not the referees actually listen to it, you know, we don't know. But it is... As you say, it is the perfect example of how, it, how how it should of how it should be done. So hopefully, it is something that the the, the, refer, the rest of the referees you know pick up on on
3: moving forward. I guess Stuart, the issue here is that if this becomes the new gold standard, the edict, will referees become too entrenched in their own decisions. When I don't know, for example, there might be a blatant incorrect call by the referee, but because he's now got the mindset of no, I'm not really going to trust the monitor, so I'm going to trust myself, then we see a bad decision being made.
1: I could, I don't want to, because I don't want to just spend the entire time absolutely pummeling these referees and the standard. But unfortunately, that's the direction it's, like, I'm left with, which is to say that, like, how much different would that be to week to week basis? There is definitely a thing about if you're um, being sort of told in the ear that there's the decision being made that you have made, sorry. And you need to go and check it. That before you've even looked at it, your brain's going, oh, it must be bad. Because if they're asking yeah. me to change it, then that's it. But at the same time, there's a certain element of, I think, the way VAR is used in terms of it's like clear and obvious and all this. And, and nothing is ever clear or obvious. Uh, I think, potentially, there would be a way of using it where you would go, just play to the whistle. The referee decides everything. And then once a goal is scored, if there's an obvious thing that we can go and look at to chalk it off, we'll go we'll go down the list of reasons why we would chalk that off. Um, you might be able to go down that way. Uh, I remember as well when um, sort of technology came into cricket, there was definitely a sense that on-field umpires uh, would have their decisions backed up just purely on the basis that the guy in the booth would be in that position next week and he wouldn't want his decisions being questioned. But I think fundamentally football is too frenetic and chaotic. And like, OK, we finally just about got the offside correct with technology and the way they're talking about doing it as well at the World Cup with like trackers in the balls and, and advanced, all this, fantastic. But the fact that we played a full season where we were using actual video technology, which moves at 24 frames per minute, And uh, we didn't even make a point of deciding which frame would we use for the ball being played. Like all of that, uh, the only technology that worked, this was the problem with implementing it in the first place, was the only objective thing you could do with technology. Is it over the line or not? Everything else. There's so many, like in cricket, you can say it's either this or it's that. In rugby, it's either this or it's that. In football, you can watch the same decision a thousand times and not risk not necessarily reach a consensus decision. And that's why it's harder and harder. So a referee on the field, whether it's it's his authority being challenged or just simply ineptitude, sometimes you're just not going to get them right. Well, we shouldn't give Hawkeye
3: a complete pass because it failed at Huddersfield at the weekend. But primarily, you're absolutely right. I love Hawkeye when it works because it is either a goal or it's not a goal. There's no real debate, is there? There isn't a debate. It's either a goal or it isn't. But as you rightly say... You can watch this video over and over again. Slow-mo makes it worse. It it muddies the waters even further. So I think that's something we've got to take into account. But we can't really take into account too long because we've got three more far topics to talk about. We'll go a bit more quickfire this time. One each. So, Cole, you're off to Old Trafford. Gabriel Martinelli had a goal chalked off due to a foul by Martin Erdegaard in a build-up. Do you think that goal should have stood?
2: No, no. I mean, the correct decision was got there. And this was a prime example of, of VAR working the way it should work and the goal rightfully being chalked off. Because, you know, I've seen a lot of people say, oh, it was a soft free kick. It was a soft push in the back. But ultimately, it was a push in the back that knocks Ericsson off the ball and Saka takes it on to make the pass for the goal. So for me, right decision was got to there. And, and that was a case of VAR working the way we want it to.
3: Now, Matthew, you're off to the Merseyside derby as Virgil van Dijk put in a rather robust tackle on Amadou Anana. The term orange card has been mooted quite often when looking at this clip. But in honesty, between the ref and VAR, should this have been a red?
0: Oh, I think it is. And I know the Derma Gallagher's come out on Sky. Um, uh, I don't know if it was this morning or, or yesterday, Saw so talking about how things have changed from last season, I think the the amount of rule changes around this is is kind of getting a little bit farcical. When you look at what Van when you look at what Van Dyke did, that was clearly that was clearly a dangerous thing. And you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying he deserved it, but you know, someone like Virgil Van Dyke should know better because he you know, he missed. I think it was a whole year, uh, pretty much, when he, when, he had a, you know, when he had a similar injury, well, not a similar injury, but a similar tackle, led to his injury. So you think he might be a little bit more careful in those situations. I, I think he was incredibly lucky to, you know, to not get red carded there, personally. And
3: Stuart, the final bit of referee chat before we talk some actual football. We shouldn't forget Villa Park either. Philip Coutinho had the ball in the net after an incorrect offside decision. So I was under the impression that the flag was meant to stay down until the ball goes dead. With that in mind, with the flag going up, City's defenders then switched off, which they shouldn't have really. So were Stevie G's men robbed here?
1: Robbed is a bit much, but I would definitely say grieved in the sense that one of my biggest bugbears at the moment in regard to the way that the officials uh, rule the game, especially the linesman, is this what you said about the flag not being raised until a certain point? And I do feel like someone's going to get a really bad injury at some point when that happens. To see the sort of passage of play that goes through is very frustrating because it's effectively rewarding Man City for just going, nah, yeah, fine. And and the the thing that drives me even further insane is the fact that the flag doesn't really change what actually happens on the pitch because there's one, two, three, four passes at least between that and the goal. And I just feel like maybe if you were quick to raise those flags in the first instance, then players wouldn't like you've, you've trained a whole league to go. Are oh, we going to play to uh, a ridiculous degree where it like, five, ten seconds can go before the flag goes up? But as soon as that flag goes up, it gives City the uh, sort of warrant to sort of sign off for the day, and then it continues, scores a wonder goal, and done not game.
3: Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Because again, we spoke about playing to the whistle. Do you play to the flag now? In my mind, really you would have thought that VAR would have stepped in and said, actually, it's not offside, you got that wrong, goal stands. But because, as you say, City down tools went, well, it's dead now. Like Everyone kind of forgot that VAR could supersede the decision on the pitch. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, what is VAR's real edict? What is offside? It's a whole maelstrom of combination of answers. But I personally feel that play should have continued. And I feel that Villa were hard done by there. Robbed again, is probably a bit too strong, as you say, Stuart. But really, I feel it should have been a goal. Anyway, that's enough for our chat, hopefully, for another week. We'll probably have some more next week. But now, let's talk about some actual football. First up, the first pod derby of the season. Carl, a 2-1 win for Tottenham on
2: paper. But I don't think the score really tells the full story of the game, does it? Um, no, it, it doesn't. Um, you know, it wasn't an easy game. But, no, no. you know, when you look at the actual chances um, and, and some of the opportunities missed, you know, it it was the first game where I think Spurs really kind of clicked and looked a lot better in terms of with the ball and moving forward. And, you know, on another day, we, it could have been possibly four or five um, and we and we really put Fulham to the sword. Um, but then at the same time, you look at a couple of the chances near the end um, and ultimately Fulham could have managed to nick nick a point out of that game, was it not for a great save from Hugo Lloris, but much better from Spurs. But on another day, I think Son you know, and a couple of the other players will be disappointed that they didn't take advantage of getting themselves on the score sheet.
3: Now, Matthew, from the other side of the derby fence, what was your take on Saturday? I mean, you certainly grew into the game by the time you scored. Mitrovic is looking confident, just the, the attempt of the goal and also trying to lob Larice late on. That's a kind of striker who really fancies himself. So you kind of take that as a positive. But in terms of 90 minutes, what was your take?
0: Um, I think I sort of touched on it in the introduction. I think this was you know, one of our better performances of the season. I, I touched on it last week. You know, how much do you really want to read into the performance? You know, you look at Liverpool saying, you know, are they really the be all and end all that they have been in previous years? So the fact that we got a point off them, do you really want to sort of say that Wolves haven't been entertaining or exactly thrilling? So getting a draw, do you really want to judge that beating Hounslow Town, so on and so forth? Whereas, uh, uh, but you look at what we've consistently been doing, I think you know, to get a you know, very come very close. Against the Spurs side that I, you know, I think based on how they started the season, could well be challenging for the title. In all honesty, um, to come away with a performance like that, maybe not the result. You know, I don't want to use the term free hit, but that is more or less what it was in the grand scheme of things. But the performances, I think, are what are the most important things. So as long as we can pull up those performances against the teams around us, like Hounslow Town, like Brighton, and so on and so forth, then that should be enough to you know, you know to see us through. So yeah, pretty happy overall.
3: Well, let's dole back to midweek, because obviously we shouldn't forget the fact you did beat Brighton as well. So I think you've just kind of mentioned it there. Is it more a case of identifying the games that are winnable, or at least where points can be earned? So you kind of strip out the big six from the picture. I know you got a draw against Liverpool in the opening weekend. But if you are picking up points against Brentford, Brighton, then you're kind of going in the right direction. Like Newcastle did last season, once they got the house in order, they mopped up all the other teams outside the big six and charged up the league. Is that the kind of model that Fulham need to do this season?
0: It is exactly. you know, you just look at the model, you know, to go for ten home wins gets you thirty points. And you know, if you're picking off the likes of houses like Brighton, you know, um, like Bournemouth when they come up and Nottingham Fire. So if you can get ten wins out of those lot, then just you know the every away game is sort of just working out. You could probably get to you know, the magical forty points, you know, it's more like thirty five. But as long as you get forty, then you're more than likely gonna be safe anyway. That's all you could that's all you can really focus on. So yeah. So yeah, pretty happy so far.
3: Good shout. Stuart, from a neutral point of view, was it just Tottenham's quality that shone through in the end? And I guess quality that arguably came from a Charleston on Saturday. How much of an asset is he going to be to Spurs this season?
1: Oh, he's already proved his worth just by sheer wind-up value alone. (laughs) Um, What I would say is Tottenham teams of sort of yonder and previous, and, and, and also football teams across the board, if they're liked by the neutrals that means they're not effective enough. They need a bit of needle. They need a bit of snideness and obviously quality on top of that. And Richarlison gives them that in spades. And the fact that he's not necessarily someone that they're relying upon as the Beal and Endor, like Everton were, It's that he has Kane, on and all the players around him to sort of facilitate the... The quality while he can do the winding up part of it. Like Tottenham, I think it was mentioned that they might be uh, very close challenges for the title. They are going to push. I mean, it's going to be interesting as well the way this season works with the World Cup and everything, but like in a sprint finish, they would uh, No, I'm not going to bet against them as per our.
3: Well, Cole, you'll know very well about the way Tottenham have been perceived in the last few years. If we take Tottenham, I don't know, between 15 and 17, they were, I won't go as so far as media darlings, but. People kind of loved them, didn't they? They There was all this fresh Tottenham trying to break through the glass ceiling. They were kind of, I won't go as far as people's second club, but they were liked much more than they are now. You've got Jamie Carragher digging out with Charleston. They just seem to be a bit of a nastier bunch at Tottenham, but that's not really a bad
2: thing either, is it? Yeah, I think as as Tottenham fans, Dan, it was something that we'd always sort of said, isn't it? You know, we're 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 too soft when when we know we need to be a little bit tougher. You know, a little bit of the black arts when we needed to be better game management. Um and definitely brings you the dark arts, doesn't he, with some of his antics. You know, you've now got Romero in there who's not afraid to put a boot in and he's also not afraid with some of the dark arts as as a Chelsea fullback will tell you this season. So you're right what you said, you know, we were a team that a lot of people wanted to watch and, you know, said, Well, yeah, you do play good football. Um and we're kind of now, you know, we're not Mixing the two, because I'd say the football probably isn't as good. But I think you know that this Tottenham side is a lot more ruthless and a lot more capable of being able to scrap and fight and get a, a you know an ugly 1-0 win over the line, which ultimately, if you offered me 38 1-0 wins this season that weren't pretty, I'd snatch your hand off um, because of what it would bring you.
3: Absolutely, I'd be exactly the same. I've always points over performance. I know you want to play swashbuckling football, but if you're doing that and not winning what really is the point. I know it's a fine line, but as you say, Carl, give me those wins by hook or by crook. I will take them. But let's go to Sunday now. Arsenal were handle their first true test of the season, Carl. A test that they ultimately failed. Now, do you think this is going to bring the Gunners back down to earth at all?
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. From the Launch Your Online Shop stage
2: I think ultimately, I, I, do you know what I think will will give them some encouragement, Dan, is the way they played in the game. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, they'll come away saying, yes, OK, we lost. Um, but ultimately, we were the better side on the day. And if we, you know, if we maybe take our chances, we come away with something, even, you know, possibly a win from that game even more. So I think the one thing that gives them some encouragement is that performance. But what ultimately is important, and all the best sides do it, is that when you then lose a game, you then have to get back on to going on an unbeaten streak for sort of six, seven, eight games, because that's what builds your momentum over the course of the season and consistency. So I think the real key now for this Arsenal side is to see how they react from that defeat and what sort of performance they put in next. I mean, you know, thankfully for them, if you look at the fixtures, they're at home to Everton and you would, you probably wouldn't and couldn't pick a better fixture if you really wanted to, because I think they'll go into that game feeling that at home. They'll just have too much for Everton, and if they put in a good performance and get another good win, then they'll feel like the momentum is carrying on again. Um, so yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, was a, it wasn't the result they wanted, but performance-wise, I still think they can hold their heads high from that from this weekend.
3: Now, Matthew, it does seem as if Eric ten Hag is finally finding his feet as manager of Manchester United. It's four wins in a row now for the Dutchman. That four-nil reverse to Brentford, dare I say, is almost forgotten, which I guess is also indicative of how forgetful football fans can be if your team starts winning.
0: Indeed, it is. I think that may just have been a, you know a light bulb moment, as it were. You know, things weren't exactly great; they haven't been great you know all summer for them. But when it's you know put hard and fast and you know bare naked in front of them today right we're losing we're losing 4-0 to that lot you know whilst they may be a good side from last season it's still it's still them um so you can't really think that no, that's that was clearly a moment where they said right this clearly isn't working that's when you know harry mcguire is starting to come out of the team which may you know even those club captain may well turn out to be a stroke of genius um in the grand scheme of things um, no, he's <laughs> not captain anymore. Well, sorry, I went to Bruno Fernandes. My apologies. Um, but yeah, just the idea of dropping Harry Maguire, you know, eighty million pound defender, might just be—he's mm, clearly not up for this style of play, as it were. So it's just—it's just a light bulb moment for them, and whether or not it, you know, works out for them in the long term, whether or not they've had any, you know, true test because you know I've said Liverpool aren't exactly all that from what we've seen you know when they play a like of Tottenham or Manchester City coming forward that may be a true test of where they are where they're gonna you know look to be come the end of the season
3: now Stuart Sunday also saw the debut of Anthony for Manchester United they're adding to their Anthony ranks but this is just Anthony without surname a big price tag but certainly a solid debut performance some of his footwork is you know to be desired shall we say but he's certainly going to be a player that will get United fans out of their seats and that really is what they've been missing over the past few years.
1: Well, I think th- there's a lot to be said for not even necessarily changing in quality, but just different faces around. Uh, uh, certainly at Man United, they need like, hope and, and sort of positivity for the future. And, and just simply, again, this is going to sound maybe a bit too harsh, but Maguire not being in there, it almost doesn't matter who's there in his place. It's just they're not that negativity. And Anthony comes in with absolutely no negativity around him. It's all, it's all I think it was the 100th Brazilian to score in the Premier League when he scored at the weekend. And it was just uh, on his debut, perfect, hit the ground running. And Manchester United are one of the most dangerous sides when it comes to building a momentum. They managed to do it under Ollie a couple of times. Well, I mean specifically when he first sort of got the caretaker job. Yeah. And they can be like really rampant when it gets that sort of uh, way. And you can sort of feel it in the Ethernet. I don't again, I don't think that they've necessarily the performances and the um the way they've done it, Arsenal was a good test for them and, and I think actually the Brentford 4 0 defeat you said before, it might have actually played into their hands in the sense that Arsenal may have tried to go a bit too in that way. But all um sort of other things aside, Anthony coming into Man United and the transition from all the negativity around the club a couple of weeks ago to this sort of, oh man, Man United are back. Oh, I don't necessarily think it's all there. It's a maybe a sandcastle uh just sort of about to be washed away. But there's as football fans what you want more than anything is that hope that things are going to be better and certainly right now Man United, you know they can believe that they are moving towards more solid ground
3: Yeah I'd have to agree with that I mean you can't really argue against four straight wins if they go five against Crystal Palace then you know you might think actually this could be a team with a rather decent shot of a top four finish I think you know as we've kind of come to the conclusion that the Brentford result was the the, the the deer really wasn't it it couldn't get much worse than that it hasn't got much worse and now the kind of shooting up the table so whether it continues we'll have to wait and see but Cole the other side of Manchester saw City I guess their armour was dented at Villa Park You wouldn't really have put a draw on the coupon come Saturday afternoon however let's look at Erling Haaland it's 10 goals in 6 matches this is getting a bit silly now isn't it
2: Yeah, he he definitely, you know, has crushed anyone who thought he might come in and struggle in this league. You know, he certainly put all those fears to bed. And actually, he looks like a player with all these attributes that's really suited to the Premier League, doesn't he? And and if he continues the way he's going to, and let's face it. He's in a team that are going to create him these sort of chances on a weekly basis. So the way he's scoring goals at the moment, and you know, again, he could have had at least another couple on the weekend as well and come away with another hat trick. We could be looking at a guy who's about to break you know, the, the goal-scoring record in a season, if he manages to stay fit, I guess if you're a City fan, that's the only thing that you might still have a nagging doubt about in the back of your mind, is can he make sure that we keep this guy fit and he doesn't have a long injury layoff? But if he doesn't, then I don't think there's a defence who'd fancy their chances against him. I'm certainly not looking forward to, to coming up against him this weekend either. Um, but we could see a guy who's about to match Clive Allen's goal-scoring record in the season.
3: Yeah, I mean, the numbers already are crazy. If he did the same rate right across the season, he'd have 63 goals. It's not, it's not the most outrageous comment I've ever made on this show. But also, I feel that you mentioned his injuries or potential to get injured. I think the fact he's getting his business done early, you know, smashing the hatchet within 35 minutes. Right, off you come. Keep your legs fresh. It's that simple, really, isn't it? He's not having to slog through 90 minutes a week at the moment. Gets Not Your Forest, tore him apart, gets the rest for 20 minutes. It's simple, really. So I think that's probably going to work in his favour, and it might work in cities as well. They dropped two points. So did Liverpool. Matthew, in terms of the result, and I guess the flashpoint, which wasn't Virgil van Dijk, Connor Cody's goal. Should that have stood? Because some are saying that James Milner... Played
0: the ball when it's deflected. What do you make of that? Oh, I I don't know. This is certainly one certainly one of those grey areas and how everything is. I think no, he was clear. He was clearly offside. It just just does come down to you know whether or not there's that little that like, no, that touch from James Milner. I must say when I looked at it, you know, when I was watching it live, I thought you no, know, clearly off, definitely off. I don't know. The, the little touch from James Mill, this all comes back to, you know, should the rule be written in a certain way that is it the last significant touch or is it the last, you know, whatever touch it is that should, should be the most important? I don't know. I think in the grand scheme of things, though, they probably just about got this one right.
3: And Stuart, another forgettable afternoon for Leicester. Five goals shipped to Brighton at the weekend. Do you think a defeat to Aston Villa this Saturday will be the end of Brendan Rodgers at the King Power?
1: This is funny, actually, because the clubs in crisis happen all the time. Like Two defeats is the end of the world. And Leicester's scenario this season has been sort of exacerbated by their transfer policy across the summer. And I've been convinced of not necessarily Brendan Rodgers being sacked, but I've been convinced he's going to walk. And playing against Aston Villa aside, up until the game against Manchester City... Uh, it was on a real knife to whether Stephen Gerrard might have been showing the exit door as well. So that game is going to be so intense in terms of whoever loses. It might even turn out to be a damp squib and both sides just accept the point. But I don't see Rogers there in the long term. And I do wonder whether, especially with everything that happened in Paris, whether sides like Leicester, like Aston Villa, I could throw West Ham in there, but that might be being a bit harsh. Might just be on the phone to Pochettino and seeing if they can get a call back.
3: Wow, that's quite a shout. I mean, I haven't got time to discuss this at the moment, but keep that powder dry for another show. Bournemouth, no manager, no problem, Carl. They overcame a 2-0 deficit against Nottingham Forest. We touched on the penalty earlier, so let's talk about Forest very quickly. I mean, many jokes have been made about signing hundreds of players, but... They haven't won in five now. Are they starting to find life in the Premier League rather difficult? Was the weekend defeat a dose of realism for Stevie Cooper's men?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it's, you know, Premier League life is hard, isn't it? And Forrest, I think, given the amount of changes they've made, that they were going to struggle at some point. And obviously, everyone was waiting for that opportunity, wasn't they, to kind of jump on the well. That's what happens when you sign so many players. I think they'll ultimately be really disappointed with that result this weekend, because they played really well against us and should have had more. And you kind of thought, well, if they play that way week in, week out, they won't and shouldn't essentially struggle in the league. But, you know, it's easy to raise your games when the big boys come in. You've just got to make sure you do it when the smaller teams also come. And to go two up, they will feel they should have seen that game out and got something over the line there. So, yeah, I think they'll be disappointed. But it's early days. If they, let's say, if they, we, they if they can get back to that sort of football they showed in those first couple of games, they'll give themselves a reasonably decent chance. And then, obviously, hopefully, the squad should settle as each week continues.
3: Until January
2: when they buy buying number 20. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs>
3: yeah, when the 40th transfer comes in, yeah, they'll be all right. <laughs> but Matthew, I know you probably don't have an England musical instrument at hand. However, Ivan Tony, would you put him on the plane to guitar? Yes or no?
0: I don't know. I think because everyone knows that Harry Kane is going to be the start. I think that's sort of pretty much established. It's going to be a battle for who's going to be backing them up. I honestly think it's literally just going to come down to who is in form when November comes around. I think it might be a still bit a little bit too early. You know, there'll be, you know, there'll be talks about know, whether or not Marcus Rashford goes to yeah. play in the middle. There will be, you know, I can't think of any more. You know, Callum Wilson, I'm sure, will get calls. Danny Ings, if he goes. Um, Ollie Watkins. There's plenty to choose. But I genuinely think it will just come down to who's in form in November. I mean, if he keeps it up, I can see it happening. But I just think it is still a little bit too early to call on that. This isn't a thing about, against Tony. Great player. Not just because of the club he plays, he plays for. It's just, I think it is too early to tell who's going to be backing up Harry Kane right now.
3: Yeah, fair shout. I mean, there's a multitude of contenders. I feel that, as you say, Rashford will probably be there due to versatility. 26-man squad, probably a no-brainer. But then you're looking down the list. Bamford, chuck him into the mix as well. Just anyone who gets, I don't know, 6-10 goals between now and early November, you're probably on the plane. Finally, though, Stuart, Wolves. they got a welcome win over Southampton. Their third of the season. One that just starts to break the clouds over modern U, shall we say. Are you expecting much from Bruno Larges' men this season?
1: This is an interesting question in the sense that I remember Wolves had a relatively similar start last year. Yep. And I was very firmly on the board of... Oh, Bruno large, he didn't have anything. He was going to be the first manager sacked. I remember, I think it was Brentford beat them heavily as well. I can't remember if it was at Molyneux or at Brentford. But still, at that point, it was, oh, this is, the, the Wolves' time has gone. And it was all about Nuno. It was all about that team. And they really went on a, a, a spectacular run. And and actually, sort of, toward the end of the season, massively underperformed. There was a hot minute where they were 19-1 to to finish in the top four. And they were 1-0 up at Arsenal. And everything after that just went really downhill. They managed to concede the last-minute winner, last minute, winner, uh, last minute uh, goal there to lose the game 2-1. And I'm very reluctant to do the same again in terms of completely right wolves off at this point in the season. They've invested probably... Well, they've certainly got a better squad this time around than they did last time around. And the Diego Costa nification of their team whether or not he actually manages to finally come in or it's going to be very interesting and I think ultimately they're going to be better than three teams in this league so they'll still be around and it's just a case of where is their ceiling and If they go on a run like they did last year, I could definitely see them being top 10. Again, they're one of the sides in the Premier League and they have loads of this across the board where their ceiling is quite high and their bottom is 20th. So they could finish anywhere from like ninth to absolutely rock bottom. And I'm not prepared to write Wolves out just yet.
3: I like the way you sat on the fence there. Nothing wrong with that at all. Right. On that note, we've hit full time. So a fantastic show. Apologies if you wanted more football chat. It was the referee's fault. Now I just need to do the admin, which is as simple as thanking my three top guests. Stuart, thanks for your time this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed your debut I would like to join us again sometime soon.
1: Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure and I'll come back anytime.
3: Fantastic, mate. Now, Matthew, thanks for your time as always, but I believe you're leaving me for another sport. Is this true, unfortunately?
0: Uh, it is. Just on a um, on a couple of weeks' loan, that's all it is. Just with, with my work covering the NFL now and you know, with the NFL season starting up, I just need to take a little bit of a break whilst i'm in the us um when i come back to the uk in a couple of weeks i'll be uh, back to play for it again but just time difference and with the work everything working now i just i just can't commit to it right now so i'll be back um in around october time but uh, thanks for having me on you know these first couple of weeks of the season and when i do come back i can't wait to be back
3: top man and i'm only putting your leg there's always a seat open for you matthew so as always thank you for your time
2: and cole you for wearing the captain's armband this week i hope you'll join me next time Yes, mate. Yeah, really enjoyed that. And hopefully going forward, I can join you again at two o'clock as we chat all things Premier League.
3: Absolutely. Right. Cheers, guys. And also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leads me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye.